Well, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13 this morning. Now, what might a life driven, even defined by the cross, by the gospel, look like? Now, in many ways, this has been the tune of 1 Corinthians so far. What does it mean to have a life driven by the cross of Jesus Christ? Now, if we're honest, and if I'm honest, as we've walked through this letter, this letter brings with it, no doubt, some real challenges for our lives. Now, if you've been going through it and you've been like, this is really hard, this is really challenging, well, this is just what this letter is meant to do. It calls us to examine our Christianity and our view of the Christian faith. And not just in the day of the Corinthians and when this letter was written, but in our day. And so this challenge, though, as we've seen it, and even as we're going to see some very challenging things this morning, it's not just a First Corinthians thing. Like, you only find this in the letter to the Corinthians in First Corinthians. You do not, that's not it. It's not only this letter. It is really this letter and beyond is giving us much of the heartbeat of true Christianity. So consider that. Consider a few passages then outside of 1 Corinthians because we will be seeing this here. So outside of 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read a few passages that show this. And as you hear them, what I want you to do, not just be passive in listening, but active in listening. As you hear them, hold up, not simply your head, because that will be the temptation And I'm afraid that many, they come Sunday after Sunday and that's all they have. Fill my head with stuff. So not just your head. Yes, examine and be filled with good things in your head. But hold up your head and your heart and your life to the soul-searching, heart-revealing truths of God's Word. So hear these verses that show what we will see here in a few moments. Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. John chapter 13, 
verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Amen. Philippians 1.21 For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 2 Timothy 3.12, which Dane preached on or from last week. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever he says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As you hear all those verses, and even as we come to our passage here this morning, I have a radical question for you. What if we said to those verses, and even to our passage this morning, I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to embrace those verses, and even this passage this morning, and I am going to listen to God this morning. I hope that's your demeanor. Not just a casual, nominal kind of gathering of the church. But that would be your demeanor this morning. And so I hope that is. And truly, if that is the case, then buckle up because our verses here are going to challenge us. In no way moving us away from the authentic, true faith once for all handed down to the saints. But what they will do is they will move you and me away from a safe, cultural, nominal, casual, even prideful version of an Americanized, tamed Christian faith. And so to see this, let's look at our Bibles here and read our passage. We pray, God, bless the reading of your word. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, 
like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Well, as we hear God's word, as you just did, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. As we hear God's word, it has this role. As the reformers said, this role of semper reformanda, which means always reforming. It's to always be reforming, changing, transforming you and me and this church. Never stopping. There's never a point when we as individuals or as a church can say that we need not become more like Christ. Always reforming. And so it is certainly doing that here in these verses. Paul is very directly, even bluntly, rebuking the Corinthians here. And so as he began this letter, he is continuing it on here. He is setting forth the cross, the wisdom of God, the gospel, and a Christ-centered spirituality as central to how we view the Christian faith how we view the world, and how we view everything. More specifically, he has set all of that forth as the basic foundation for unity and even the resolution to divisions within the church. All those things. The cross, the wisdom of God, the gospel, and a Christ-centered spirituality. And so disunity and division is exactly what the Corinthians were facing. They were a messy bunch of believers. And Paul, he is exhorting them onward here. He's not condoning their sin. He is addressing their sin. And so as you think of the Corinthians, don't think, well, the Corinthians did it, so I can do it too. No. Paul is saying, guys, Corinthians... Church, saints, believers, this is not good. You are not to do this. You are not to be this. And he's lifting up Christ and the cross of Christ and saying, see, this is what you're to be in the world. That's what he's calling them to. And so as he comes to his points here, his exhortations provide real benefit. Real benefit. Now, as he writes this in verse 6, you see it right away. I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. 
And so as he says that, I've applied all of these things to myself. There's a big question like, what things are you talking about, Paul? What things do you mean? And so he probably had in mind what he just said in verses 1 through 5, how they are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you can see it right there. And as such, that being who they are and what they are, their aim is to please God. It doesn't mean they're not, they're not loving you or loving people, but they're not, li- they're not living and being driven by public opinion. God is the one they're aiming to please. And so I think he has that in view, yet at the same time, he might also have a lot more in view, as in chapter 1, verse 10, until this very moment, which I think it's both. Both of those things in mind. So as you've been here, and maybe you've been hearing First Corinthians preach, maybe you've thought along the way, well, you know, this is all just a bunch of abstract stuff. You know, when are we going to get to, like, the very practical things? You know, give me applications, There's a lot I could say to that. But let me just say, if that's you, he makes clear here that all of that, all that he has said until this very point was for your benefit. All he wrote there is for your life. It is for the real world. It is for real life. Through loss, through grief, through pain, through persecution, through the world, through the workplace. All that stuff. And more. He was and has been giving real applications. Now note that. Note that in view of everything we've seen, that deep reflection and study and pondering of God and the Gospel and the Spirit wrought wisdom of God is not counterintuitive to life. But it's essential to it. And it's essential to this church. And it's essential to your real life in workplace, in marriages, in parenting, in struggles, in fights, and everything else. And so real benefit for you has been given. And real benefit of applying all this to himself unto this benefit here. The rock-solid protection of not going beyond the Word. Of not going beyond the Word. He's applied all of these things to himself so that you might not go, verse 6, beyond what is written. Now, there's kind of a challenge here with those words. It's hard for us to know for sure what he's referencing here. Now, I think most of you, maybe, probably heard that and think, Bible, which is good. (laughs) That's a good thing. Because I think ultimately that's what he's pointing to. But remember, he did not have New Testament, right? So he's not referring to that. He has the Old Testament, not the 
go beyond what was written. And that's where it gets a little bit hard to know exactly what he's saying here. But I think in view of what he just said in verses 1 through 5, stewards of the mysteries of God. And even chapter 1, verse 10, until now, he's probably talking about not going beyond what God has revealed. And so I think we see this in a number of ways. Since he started this letter, he has referenced the Old Testament eight times. So chapter 1, verse 19, Isaiah 29, 14. Chapter 1, verse 31, Jeremiah 9, 23, or 23. Chapter 2, verse 9, Isaiah 64, 4. Chapter 3, verse 19, Job 5, 13. And chapter 3, verse 20, Psalm 91, 11. So in that way, he's saying, don't go beyond what has been revealed. But along with this, he's been deeply contrasting the wisdom of this age against the wisdom of God revealed in the gospel. And we've seen that again and again and again. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And so remember, not long ago, he said in chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And so this then is where, what the Corinthians were doing. They were looking to the wisdom of this age. And they were, as this verse says, puffed up in favor of one against another. And that, not in view of the wisdom of God, but in view of the wisdom of men. And so they were looking to that which fosters pride rather than what puts pride to death. And so Paul, he confronts this. And he confronts their nonsensical boasting. Their nonsensical boasting. So one by one, he addresses their prideful, puffed up, you know, bigger than your britches mentality. They and we also, verse 7, have no reason to think that we are better than others. None. Not one person. All they have, all you have, the very reason they were believers was not due to them, but God. Period. All received. And so also with you and me. And in this last rhetorical question that he has here in verse 7, it's the kicker. As those who have received all that from God, why are they boasting in things they didn't have anything to do with? That's what Paul's asking here in verse 7. He's like, what? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now recall Paul's earlier words from chapter 1, verse 26 through 31, or more specifically, verse 30 through 31. Let me read those. And because of him, 
You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so their boasting then is nonsensical. It's like boasting in a gift that someone else gave you and then going around and telling everyone, hey, look what I have. (laughs) I did that. You know that lawnmower that Fred gave me? Well, yeah, I made that and I thought of that. I designed the blueprints for that. And I even got it for myself. See how great I am? Do you see? That's, That's nonsensical. It doesn't... Wait, Fred, Fred's the one who gave you the lawnmower. So what are you talking about? It's the same here. It's God is the one who's given you all these things. So nonsense, and it makes no sense. It was given to you. You did nothing. So what exactly is it you are boasting about? And so Paul... He'll come back to that, to the nonsensical nature of what they're doing, this puffed up boasting and the ridiculous nature of this. But first, as we're hearing all these initial words from Paul, we need to hear his initial point here. Be careful you don't go beyond what God has revealed. Be careful you don't go beyond what God has revealed. So often... At the root of so much error and false godliness in our day, of the puffed up pride sort of variety even, is just this. It's going beyond what God has revealed. And again and again, if you don't think that's a problem, the temptation we face as a church and as believers is so often right there. I mean, you look back at church history and again and again and again, drifting and drifting and drifting. And we see that God in His grace and in His mercy he has risen up men and women, those who preached and proclaimed and stood fast on something very simple. Preach the Word. Hold fast to the Word. Be transformed by the Word. And don't go beyond the Word. The Reformation, the Puritans, and even the call in our day through expository preaching is an ongoing call for us to return to the Word, to the whole counsel of God. Semper Reformanda. Always reforming. And so the tagline being this, don't go beyond what God has revealed. And the threat is ongoing and its banner must keep arising and being raised. Don't go beyond what God has revealed. You know, as we talk about knowing God's will even, discerning God's will, I think God told me this, really? So we need another book of the Bible. Is that what you mean? God told you this? As we consider discerning God's will, don't 
go beyond what God has revealed. As we live in a hyper-experiential and emotive age, don't go beyond what God has revealed. Your emotions are not the authority. Your heart is not the authority. The heart is more deceitful than all else. But go ahead and trust your heart, friends. What damage that will do to you. As we consider life and politics and work and ethics and marriage and gender, the family, education, don't go beyond what God has revealed. And as we press on as a church, we just lay everything before the Word and we say, may we become more like Christ because we are not to go beyond what God has revealed. And so it's at this point that we come right back to how we understand the Christian faith. As I began this morning. So while the Corinthians were intermixing their faith with the world, instead, they were rather to define it by the cross and by Christ and by the gospel and the wisdom of God, what God has revealed. And this is why Paul moves here into this next section. And he gives this stark rebuke identifying for the Corinthians and for us the root of real godliness. The root of real godliness. So here we see a host of sarcastic exhortations from Paul. Did you know that Paul used sarcasm in the Bible? Well, here we see it. Now, when we think of sarcasm, we might think of a number of things. We probably, as Americans, as we have comedy and you know comedies and shows and such like that we probably think of funny right lighthearted you know something done in good humor sarcasm someone comes away laughing at the end of it all well that is not the flavor of paul's sarcasm at all so as you hear me say sarcasm don't think i'm going to come laughing at the end of this paul's sarcasm here is dead serious, even rather blunt. And it will be that to us this morning, as you will see in a moment. However, even so, he is being blunt with them. But note where we are. We're in chapter 4, <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he's told them as it is before, but it's taken him three chapters before he got here. He pastorally moved into these points. He didn't just blast them, you know? I think some of us think, well, that's just my personality. I just go around blasting people. I don't think for a number of reasons that's what we should do, namely the fruit of the Spirit. But note that he did this pastorally, and so here he comes to these points. And so he begins first with them, the Corinthians, and their view of themselves. So here's where we see Paul's sarcastic point. The Corinthians are pretty great all on their own. (laughs) They're just so incredible. You know, if anyone can boast, 
it's got to be the Corinthians. I mean, such paradigms of godliness. I mean, they don't need anything or anyone else because they are just so great, right? I mean, worldly wealth and worldly kingdom, I mean, they have gained all that on their own. They don't even need the apostles or anyone else. And because of their greatness, the apostles might just have a chance of reigning along with them. Isn't that great? Now, of course, hopefully you're not thinking, well, he's being serious. What is he doing up here? I'm being sarcastic as well because that's what Paul is saying. All of that is sarcastic. He's not saying this really is the case. He's saying what they are and what they're exhibiting is a deeply flawed, mistaken superiority. A false view of spirituality. And I find it interesting. This isn't the main point, but just something to note. What he says here in sarcasm of the Corinthians is actually quite similar to the prosperity gospel. Right? It's a conflation of worldly values upon the Christian faith that actually makes it directly foreign to the Christian faith and even directly opposed to the Christian faith. It's an intruder rather than a friend. And this is why, as the Corinthians are boasting in all these ways, and which I think if the prosperity gospel was consistent, they would say the same thing about the apostles. This is why the apostles would appear so pathetic in their sight. Man, look at us. We're amazing. Who's this measly guy over here? I mean, look at how he's suffering. I have none of that. The apostles are anything but those things in the world. And this is where Paul turns to contrast that, the Corinthians' view of themselves, with the example and ministry of the apostles. So again, we have here Paul's sarcastic point. The apostles are not so great. (laughs) So the Corinthians are pretty great all on their own, and the apostles are not so great. So according to the Corinthians' criteria, what's clear is the apostles' lack of greatness. Now, as we look at what Paul says here, I want you to ask yourself. Don't answer aloud. And you already know when I ask it. But just ponder this as we go through what Paul says here. Who does this resemble? And so Paul, he begins, so who does this resemble? Think about it. Paul, he begins sarcastically by saying, the apostles are weak and poor, which they are, right? The apostles are fools for Christ. They're weak, dishonored, needy, laboring with their own hands. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, because if you're rich, in their day, you're not laboring with your own hands. You have your servants and slaves. You're standing back telling people what to do. And so here are these measly apostles. And so how different that is from the Corinthians, right? I mean, they are wise, they're strong, they're honored, they're rich. And so this is getting at their view of Paul. 
He's so tiny compared to them. And so along with being that, weak and poor, Paul continues, the apostles, they're also sufferers. Paul's like, look at us. We're hated. We're persecuted. We're slandered. We're scum. We're worse than dirt. We're even sub-scum. We're basically excrement in the world. What the Corinthians are saying, see how lowly they are? I mean, this certainly can't be the kind of godliness that we're being called to. Forget those guys. Forget Paul. Don't listen to him. Yet note how Paul began in verse 9 with this gladiatorial, gladiatorial imagery in Rome. So in Rome, gladiators, they were a spectacle exhibited as those sentenced to death. And what does Paul say here in verse 9? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now at this point... It's right for us to return to my question. Who do they resemble? Prosperity preachers? Teachers? Followers? Now this is going to be a hard one, which I think and I pray the Lord would work in us this morning on this one. Or do they even resemble Americans? or even Christians in America? And the answer is what? Mostly no. Rather, do they not resemble him who Mike read about a moment ago from 1 Peter 2? Christ, the one who was reviled and suffered and died in our place. Now we are getting at the crux of Paul's rebuke. The Corinthians are not paradigms of godliness, but direct opposites to it. And I'll let you just roll that out on our view of Christianity in America right now as well. And so here we see the danger of prideful, self-exalting, spiritual superiority. And so who today might fall in this category? Well, I think a number of people, or not people, but I guess symbol of like images of what this might look like in our our churches and even in our lives, it could well be the person who says, I read my Bible, and I'm talking about in America, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I memorize God's Word, I even study God's Word, and I read other edifying books concerning the faith. I must be special. Now, God, He loves me in a special way. Oh, sure. You know, you have the Christians over here, but God, He loves me 
in a way that's unique. Why the church, I mean, they're blessed to have me. My Bible knowledge, I mean, look at me. I might even be the next fall, who knows? People are just blessed to be in my presence. Now, of course, I'm not, I'm not saying that of myself, so hopefully you're not hearing that of me, but that can happen, and I think that maybe one shade of what the Corinthians were doing puffed up in modern-day terms. In our day in America, boasting with no basis for boasting. A false godliness. It's not true godliness. Or it might be something more simple. It might be all head and no heart. Now, I think in America, in our churches, this is what you are being faced with. Is you want to come to church every Sunday and have your mind filled and not let it affect your life at all. How do we know that? Look at America. (laughs) How many people are being made disciples of that aren't related to me in this church? All head and no heart. They can wow you with Bible knowledge, yet if you were able to go into their home, you'd find it empty and empty of Christ and empty of the heart of Christ, empty of the example of Christ. Even more, what you would find is simply an Americanized faith without the cross, aside from perhaps a few crosses on the wall, right? Here and there. You see, I got a few crosses on my wall. I'm about to cross. So hopefully you're seeing why this passage is a challenge to us. It is right for us, for you, for me, for every single one of us in this room as Americans to ask, what is our view of true godliness? Is it simply that person who has all head? Or is it the whole thing? As we consider Paul's words here, you and I, we need to reconsider, reconsider our view of true godliness. Friends, how challenging this is in our day. No, I'm, I'm in no way claiming this isn't a challenge for us. It's a challenge for me. But it may very well be at the root of what we need to hear in America right now. How many are lifting up this kind of devotion to Christ? Not as though it's like another level of spirituality, but it's simply what normal Christian faith looks like. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Be persecuted. As you read the New Testament, you don't get this idea that suffering and persecution is a surprise. So a Christianity that's willing to go and suffer and be reviled and be uncomfortable and go without much for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul was willing to do. 
I might lose this. I might lose that. I might lose you. But I'm going to be about the cross of Jesus Christ. You say that. I'm going to be about the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, Christ, He saves. And He is the Savior of the world. There is no one else. He saves through His life, through His suffering, through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection. And right now, in this room, if you don't know Jesus, He can save you right now. Repent and believe the gospel and He will save you. You will be a child of God in His forever. And He can do that if you would simply put your faith in Him. He paid the debt for you on the cross. Every sin, the wrath of God upon Himself in your place, in my place. And so His life is that is that. He is the Savior, but He's also something else. He's our model. Our example of how we're to live and how we're to walk and how we are to be. He's truly the one that we love more than anyone or anything else, even unto death. That's why Paul can say what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Could it be that we have made a differentiation that was never meant to be? The apostles, sure. The early church, sure. You know, other Christians throughout history and even today, sure. Not us. Not me. Well, friends, perhaps... Rather, what has happened in America is we have gone beyond what has been revealed. And so our sort of Christianity is beyond the Word. Rather than the cross, it's comfort, affluence, safety, and worldliness we're living for. Give me my big house. Give me my cars. Give me my retirement plan and pensions. And don't ever take those away. Friends, Christ is calling us to follow Him. And that means the cross. Paul has made that clear. The cross is to define you, it's to define me. Even this morning, your head and your heart. As we gather this morning, and friends, as we scatter also. So Paul, he began this letter magnifying God's grace, didn't he? But we are right to consider our understanding of grace. What sort of grace did you receive? Was it some cheap grace? Or was it costly grace? Not because of anything you did. Because of what Christ has done. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had it right. 
Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without contrition. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, which is what we see today, or maybe see much of today. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So friends, do you see what Paul is calling you to? He's calling us away from the Corinthian sort of false godliness and towards true godliness. Towards a Christ-centered cross embracing godliness. And so this morning, all of us, every one of us, we need to go to Christ this morning. We need to pray to Him. We need to consider our lives. We need to consider our faith, our pursuits, in view of these things. This is not abstract stuff. God means this for your life, even unto the complete changing of it. Friends, He is the Savior and there is no other. His Word and His way is best. It's true and it is honey to your lips. What we've heard today is honey to your lips, to my lips. So ask the Lord to align your life and to align our lives with this, with the cross, with Christ. And may we together take up these words and embrace this Christ-centered and cross-ticking-up faith. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we come to you, Lord Jesus. We come and just say to you right now, Lord, we want to follow you. You say that those who know you will walk in the same way as you walked. Well, here it is. Help us, Lord. Help me. Help us. Pray that you would help us to reconsider our view of the Christian faith. This is nothing new. This is right here in your word. And so may we return to it and cease boasting and false godliness and walk in Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying godliness by the power of the Spirit of God. That we would just say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, and that would be us. We would go out of this place and go as disciples, making disciples, and we would not make that a phrase, but our lives 
we would go out as those who have Christ before us and saying, Lord, I will follow you and I will aim to be like you and walk according to you and share you with anyone and everyone, even if it's costly. Help us, Lord. Help all of us and help beyond us. Help our brothers and sisters throughout America. Help those who have been deceived by the prosperity gospel. May you lead them out of it. And help any here who don't know you this morning that they would see that Jesus is the life. He is the Savior. He is eternal life. And so may they look to Christ this morning. Be with us as we respond to your word. May we not respond simply with our mouths or even our heads, but with the whole thing, head and heart and life. In Jesus' name, amen.